Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading industry experts, researchers, and clinicians to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Today, I'm really excited. I'm joined with Trey Brasher of Unlimited Sciences and David Rosen of Stockton University. Uh, thank you guys both so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. It's good to be here, Garov. Good to be here. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk to both of you guys. Uh, I know that you guys have both done some really exciting work in the realm of psychedelic science and research. And, you know, I think for our audience, it would be really great if you could both just introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of a background about who you are and your work in the psychedelic space. Good, Trey. You can kick things off. All right. Um... Yeah, I have a I have a long prologue with a redemptive plot arc, but I used used psychedelics in my personal life to treat some really severe depression earlier in my life and uh suffered some pretty s- severe legal consequences as a result and uh after that I just couldn't go on with my life knowing that there were other people that would have to go through that. And uh, I went back to school for pharmacology kind of as a grad student aged undergraduate after getting more or less an entire architecture degree. And uh, that's how I wound up meeting Dave. So, yeah, so um, Trey um, has a pretty epic story. So I was teaching, um, he, he didn't mention that he came from Colorado um, and ended up in New Jersey, which is where our paths cross. So. Um, my name is David Rosen. Um, I am a cognitive neuroscientist uh, specializing in music perception and music cognition. Um, much of my work as a PhD student and beyond has been on um, altered states. That's what really gets me off. I think like there's something, um, you know, a lot of us are trying to optimize all the time for for like you know, what the standard is, the cultural and the, and the societal standards and like achievements that we need to meet. And personally, um, I've been a musician since the time I was eight years old. Um, I'm really into improvisational music. That's the focus of, of much of my work was looking at the brains of jazz musicians. So I've done all kinds of music studies from analyzing what's popular in, in uh, pop music billboard charting songs. That's kind of what Seeker Chord does. And on the other side, I'm an improvising musician. I've been in bands for 20 years, um, rock music, progressive rock, um, some, some jamming and things like that. Um, and really, um, it's been the, the confluence of these experiences that has let me um, have a glimpse um, into kind of these altered states of being. Psychedelics is one way to get there. Uh, meditation is another. I have found that like deep uh, music improvisation and that kind of flow state um, is also core to my work. Uh, we're working on a paper right now about that. Um, and so kind of have this background of of psychology of I've been a teacher. Uh, that's where I met Trey at Stockton. So I was a professor there for a year. So I have an education background, a music background, a neuroscience background, um, a technology background, and kind of all these pieces together. Psychedelics fit in. I was teaching a class just about cognitive psychology for a year at Stockton. And, you know, you have all kinds of different students in there. And uh, one of my projects for that class is to do a research paper. Uh, like usually students have never really done real research as undergraduates to so say find three three papers related to any topic you want to do in cognitive psychology or neurocognitive neuroscience and um you know bring that to the table and so you know i got lots of different topics and then i got this like really this really uh kind of weird email that i had never seen before and and trey wrote this email and he said dr dave i want to write a paper about the neuroscience of of uh psychedelics um, and because there, there had been a, you know, a resurgence of that work recently, and especially in the neuroscience field, I think I thought I was like, wow, first of all, that's an advanced topic uh, for someone to like, you know, usually people pick like very like kind of like the mo- like more generic things of like what's intelligence or something more mainstream. Um, he's like, I want to write a paper about this, but I'm worried it's going to threaten my standing at Stockton University. Um, you know, I was I kind of got in some legal trouble and I'm not sure if I write a paper about the neuroscience of psychedelics. Is that going to potentially threaten my my uh, my ability to go to school here? Because that's part of the re- way I'm here um, is through kind of through all that. 
Um, and I was like, well, that's ridiculous. I was like, you should definitely be it. You seem like so passionate about this topic. Um, and your writing is like incredible. There's nothing I would love more than to see you write this paper and like really become familiar with the literature. And he handed me like by far the best paper that I, I saw the entire year from any of my classes. Um, and that's kind of where I rose. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is a really amazing um, piece of writing. I'm like finishing my P. I just finished my PhD and I feel like your writing is as good as mine at this point. Um, can we do that? And that paper really kicked off. I think uh, we started to just like explore more topic topics in psychology. And we started, we, we landed by the end of the class um, and, on on wanting to do experiments together um and say look we this is a this is kind of a you know a field that is that is ripe for further pursuit and between my background in pharmacology which is trays and then my background as a cognitive neuroscientist who focuses on things like music and altered states and flow and creativity also um i think there's a lot of work that we can start to do to explore um you know how how psychedelic and the potential effects towards you know all kinds of things like psychological well-being like the way that we judge each the way that we make social judgments which are two of the papers we're working on and then in the future you know trying to see i don't know if i'm going way beyond who i am at this point but trying but trying to see um you know other ways that like you know that that's facil it's facilitate whether it's mystical experiences spiritual experiences musical experiences artistic experiences and like what's core i think also in terms of the the art and the and those religious pieces are the social bonds i think that's really what a lot of these things come down to is like the way that and now more than ever like you know the way that our the things we're seeing in our society is like being more divisive than potentially ever and and that's what i think drives both of us to you know be here to, to speak with you and to, to kind of pursue this research together because it's just like you know a fascinating um and potentially very powerful way to maybe you know shift potentially the the most uh, common and popular landscape out there so that's me that's me in a nutshell <laughs> in a nutshell a little uh, verbose and uh you can tell me to shut up anytime you want wow that's incredible. I'm really glad that you shared all that. And, you know, some interesting parallels. I was talking to Trey before, you know, we started recording. I was telling him I'm a clinical biologist. And, um, you know, I started creating content for cannabis. And eventually, now I'm a psychedelic. I have a, a big passion for pharmacology as well. Uh, but in high school, I played a lot of jazz, actually. And it was a really big part of my childhood growing up i played alto and, and baritone saxophone and, and jazz and the That's whole awesome. idea of improvisation and you know that was something i actually really struggled with a lot as a kid and you know we went to a grammy award winning music program so like music was a really serious thing and jazz is really serious and i remember always like having dreams the night before like they would post the audition results you know because i would get so nervous and so it's it's really cool to see how all these intersect you know and i i think that there's a powerful intersection between music and psychedelic medicine and uh, i think it's so great that you're ex exploring that so it leads me to my next question uh for you trey and and david how did you guys find yourself uh interested in psychedelics to begin with and trey why did you decide to take that chance and you know you're obviously a little anxious about asking david uh if you could pursue this topic of uh research so what inspired you to do so well i guess i'd like i'd like to address that paper as well but uh first off i, j I just had so much pent-up paranoia from what had happened to me. And I think Dave obviously saw that. And I, I mean, I really was that worried. I really, I do have some, some PTSD looking symptoms from the things that have happened to me. And, uh, but I just couldn't, there's no way I could forgive myself if I lived a life that wasn't true to my potential and, and what I wanted to accomplish in the world. And, uh, so the paper I wrote for Dave's class was uh, the on the neural correlates of ego disillusion. So this was this was a review of like pretty much 2010 through 2015 neuroimaging studies. Uh, two of them were psilocybin, one of them was LSD, and uh, I just I realized there was there was a lot of misperceptions about you know the activity changes in neural activity related to the psychedelic experience, particularly there's this, there's this perception that 
global functional connectivity is 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 like somehow a, a, a metabolic measurement or that it increases brain function just flat out, which is not the case at all, actually. It, it decreases many different parts of the brain. And um, I, I think that's been misrepresented in the media quite a bit. Although, you know, hopefully, hopefully the understanding is... Sure. So just to dig into to dig into that a little bit, I think, you know, uh, as neuroscientists, it's difficult to, uh, you know, communicate what we're talking about when we start using a bunch of neuroscience jargon. So I guess, you know, ultimately, you know, but with psychedelics, there, there are there are unique functional patterns. And so we talk about when we talk about the brain, we talk about basically two ways you can think about you can really break it down simplistically is functionally is are the areas of the brain that talk to each other and can communicate with each other efficiently. Um, and that is we see through white matter tracks and, and, and things like that, where and we can look through F, via fMRI and uh, other techniques to track, um, you know, where the, the metabolic activity is happening and communicating most efficiently and where those connections are through you know, white track and stuff, things like that. The other side is structural and structural is more about like neurons and like the density of matter and how much matters in different regions of the brain. And so what we do see, it's not, you know, we talk generally, look, the brain is like more connected. Um, it's different patterns of connectivity that we see with psychedelics and with ego dissolution um, that are interestingly with the default mode network. That's one of kind of the major networks that's that is like kind of sits in the background and is usually anti-correlated um, with kind of tasks that require a high amount of uh, you know cognition and cognitive control and such. And so it's interesting where kind of you, you look across and you see these alt where I have been finding is that like in creativity in flow um, also, during um, in, in psychedelic experiences with the neural correlates there, ego dissolution, um, what we see are common patterns of, of altered um, connectivity of this default mode network, which is usually what you see is, is usually anti-correlated when you're doing kind of a task, whether it's like a deep, you know, because it's related to more of reflectiveness and introspection um, and things like that. So I think just like talking about, you know, being a little more nuanced, um, Trey, Again, you can, he was an undergraduate in my class and bringing this kind of view uh, to the table and, and pointing out about, you know, how the popular media talks about uh, the neuroscience of psychedelics, which, you know, it's just like all functional connectivity is like kind of different. And him pointing out these nuances um, was an immediate sign that like, hey, we should be, you know, you, should, you, you have a firm understanding of this of this world out there. Um, and, you know, let's let's uh, pursue some cool research because you definitely have the, the ability to do so. Yeah, that's really cool. What comes to mind, you know, is a classic, uh, the the images of the brain connectivity that like Robin Carhart Harris uh, had shown last year, you know, how the connections kind of increased uh, in, in regions of the brain that maybe don't talk a, as much. But I know there's another study out of Hopkins that talked about how psilocybin was shown to be four times more effective in antidepressants than SSRIs. And what was interesting about that study I found is, you know, the uh, SSRIs, if I'm not mistaken, the idea is to kind of reduce activity in the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that kind of processes fear. And what seemed to happen with the psilocybin is activity in that region actually increased. And I think the claim that was being made was that, you know, psilocybin and these psychedelics actually force people to confront their ne the negative emotions instead of, uh, you know, the drugs like SSRIs kind of dampening them. And so it becomes a more lasting uh, benefit if they're able to face their fears. Uh, do I have that right? And is this sort of what you guys are talking about? Yeah, I guess two two areas that come to mind with with that are the the anterior cingulate shows more activity too. So you're going to get more emotional connectivity, and you know, drawing on the amygdala. You're, you're you're able to have a more direct connection between your frontal cortical control and and the amygdala and and kind of re you're able to reframe emotionally reframe the types of experiences that the amygdala are associated with is that it's a classic. I'll, I'll add a little bit to that. Uh, it's yeah. A, it's a classic. Like you know, it's a difference of, it's like a different paradigm of how to treat 
of just like how to treat you know the the psyche of a person or depression or anxiety. It's like you know the Western you know medicinal kind of approach is you know for for pain, whether it be psychological or 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 uh, physiological, is to like block the block the pain pathway in some way. And in, in that paradigm with an SSRI, you're blocking the reuptake of you know of serotonin, right? So you're so you're putting basically you have more serotonin. Um, you're not feeling as depressed. Um, that's like, you know, you can keep doing that and taking more and more and upping the, the dosage of SSRI to block that feedback from happening, which is eventually, you know, is if you stop taking the, the SSRI, it's, you know, you're going to get be right back where you were. Right. And it's you're not really um, treating the the the, psych, the underlying uh, psychological issues that are driving the whether it's anxiety or depression or you name the slew of at this point, the various applications where we've seen psychedelics um, thrive in treating these various, um, you know, maladaptive uh, disorders is because what is what you're saying, Gaurav, is like. You're, you're, you're forced to, as much as it's going to be maybe a difficult experience, especially with a guided kind of therapy, um, it's going to be difficult to confront those things. But like once you cross the bridge, once you cross a certain threshold and get through that difficulty and break down, like that's again, that's the kind of where our work starts. Like once you break down that, that kind of the ego and the sense of like what you know is true about the world, it's like... That this thing that you think you know is true about the world is creating you is creating anxiety and depression. It's like, well, where does that come from? Why do you think that way? Maybe a part of it is true, but maybe it's like a universal truth that everyone is dealing with and acting on to a certain degree. And for you at this point in this time in your life, this is how it's manifesting. And just the awareness of that, like, this is a depression. This is a I worry about person. I'll give a personal example. Like, I was just had I I was just, I saw a friend. I haven't had friends over for like the longest time. I had my keyboardist <laughs> and my guitarist and his wife and I just had a kid and, and their kid. They were they right. were just over the house yesterday. It was like amazing just to have some conversations and we were talking about like, you know, anxiety and like being, you know, how, about just like existential things. Um and this gets into our work about um about um the kind of like social judgment and about the ego and disillusion and it stems from a book that i was turned on to uh the denial of death by ernest becker uh his book won the pulitzer prize in 1973 um it built off of he's a neo-freudian it built off of freud's theories of the ego and the id um super ego which stems from like kierkegaard and this idea of like how we build our value structure and values and value systems and like how we decide what it is we want to do or don't want to do um, and my friend and I were both kind of like uh, neurotic Jews. So um, we're kind of like we're kind of like these we're kind of like work obsessed. Um, we, you know, we've had some psychedelic experiences over the years. and like um, just just out of out of curiosity of like experimentation. And I found myself um, I found myself as like a 17 or 18 year old, um, you know, having psychedelic experiences and starting to realize some things about the world and about like the structure of things and like the way people, the way we're, we're mar even very simple, you know, simple things for an adult to realize, like it's a very materialistic culture. Um, you know, these pressures are being put on every teenager and 20 something to be a certain way, like things that when you're younger and that's everything that's around you, having that break down, um, in terms of the way you're perceiving the world around you as a 17, 18 year old is like an aha moment um, for a 30 year old. Okay. Maybe that's not the kind of, you know, maybe, maybe some 30 year olds. I'm not really sure. I can only talk about myself. <laughs> the whole point of this is about that anxiety point is like, for us, we're like these hyper, I'm a hyper focused work person. Like I'm, if I'm not working on my music, I'm working on my research or I'm working on my company. And like, I very carefully, as I'm sure you guys have, and a lot of our listening audience has, we could very carefully have selected these like domains on which to focus, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's sports, right? No matter the topic and whether it's our religious beliefs and we build this value structure up, right? And we build this value structure up we build, and we go after it and we go after it and we're like always doing that. And in a way, um, this idea from the denial of death is that this building this strong sense of value, um, it gives us meaning. It gives us really meaning in our lives to wake up every day because because uh, humans are very unique in that, like, uh, what's Sheldon Solomon's quote? We're big pieces. We're like just big pieces of meat running around that are conscious that we're meat and that one day we're going to die. And we're just like 
you know and like so we're like very animalistic part of us is like we are one with nature and part of the animal kingdom but at the same time we're like the only species that's conscious that we are aware that we are aware and one day we're not going to be here anymore so in order to not like live all the time in this it, it, the reason i'm not in the corner shaking like and cur curled up crying like in darkness all the time because like i'm aware of this like what what the hell it's like this crazy world and so far beyond and all these things is because i have a i have this consciousness and that consciousness there are pros and cons to that consciousness uh, which i think trey and i our work kind of gets into we see some of that manifesting in our culture right part of it is great that i'm not in the corner that i'm able to go pursue and care about and love things and get into them and have passions but um when those passions when a when like you're trying to achieve a certain level of uh, you know you're trying to gain achievement through a passion when it's not just about you're doing something for because you love to do a thing like maybe like a flow state that you achieve maybe in a more creative domain but even in that it's like i'm obsessed with now i'm in a creative domain i love the flow state but i want my music to be heard by 10 million people well guess what i'm in the music industry and i'll tell you to get your music heard by 10 million people i don't care like even how good you are there's okay. like so many other 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 elements of this and so i think anyway to bring this back to the anxiety this is like really what you're talking about is like why psychedelics and why this and why that is because no matter the pressures that are put on you to break those things down and to again be aware and have that's like what we mean by when we talk about awareness like people throw that word around very very loosely like who doesn't think they're aware like do us that's a good i mean to me that's like a great experiment like give a survey out to like ten thousand people and the only question on the survey is do you think you're self-aware i'll guarantee you like 95 percent of those people come back and say they're self-aware because there's not really like what does that mean um right and so to get to, that's all i'm gonna say about that because i could go on just forever and like um about why psychic why psychedelics or it doesn't have to even meditation is another variable another activity that we are very interested in, in looking at because i think that's another way of gaining this like kind of self-awareness self-reflectiveness um breaking down of certain barriers that are uh, you know put upon us it's really a big difference between western and eastern thought i think and what's perpetuating uh, a lot of that that's going on that's super fascinating. You brought up so many uh, things that I, I'd love to talk about. And no, by all means, keep keep, keep going when you're on a roll, because chances are I'm just going to ask you another question to, to have you share that with me anyways. This is all this is all very interesting. I, I like how you talked about this being a different paradigm, because you're right. I was thinking about like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, and how like now that we understand what we do about the brain, it's almost counterproductive to pair SSRIs with CBT because on the one hand, you're using the drugs to kind of stuff all that down, you know, and then the other hand, you're hoping with the therapist, the stuff comes out and you can release it, you know, and so psychedelics really offer a conducive bridge to being able to reach into what is causing that fear and kind of bring it to light. And, you know, you talk about, you know, breaking down the barriers and awareness. And what comes to me that's so interesting is, you know, the ego dissolution is the first step or one of the first steps in this, you know, it's like we, we have these social pressures that you talk about that we're raised with. And then, you know, people maybe through meditation or the psychedelic experience realize like, oh, like it's more life's about more than my ego it's you know it's not necessarily about meeting all these different uh, expectations that others have placed on me and kind of as the ego dissolves and this freudian concept that you talk about if people become more aware of who they are and their place in you know the universe then our priorities kind of shift and our desires shift and then for uh, some people that can really increase their sense of gratitude or, or satisfaction out of, out of life, you know? And so those are all just some of the really interesting things that uh, came to my mind when you shared what you just did. Have you seen, I don't want to give you spoilers. Have you seen soul by any chance? The new Pixar movie? I have. So oh. I was just, man, this, no, I heard it's so good. Oh my God. Check it's it out. If you're, you're a jazz, if you're a jazz guy too, it's like very much, it's, yeah. it's right at the heart. It's right at the heart of what we're talking about. I think it's also linked I would say I'm not going to give any. It's pretty new movies. So I'm not going to give any spoilers. Maybe I'll give just a line from it. Uh -huh. um, but like, um, you know, for the later in life treatment uh, with the psychedelics is being used 
for um, where we've seen a lot of success. Um, I think that also kind of it also permeates into the realm of I don't know I've, I'm not too familiar with the studies in this realm. Maybe Stray can let me know. Maybe you know Gaurav about midlife crisis a midlife crisis um, and maybe treating midlife crises in a different way. I think they're like. If this work hasn't been done, everyone out there now is going to run and do that study. <laughs> going to run and do that study because, right, it's a similar. It's a, it's like and the reason this is soul. So soul. There's one line in the movie that I will share. It won't spoil the movie or anything. Uh-huh. Um, the guy is, the guy is 37 years old. I'm 37 years old. He's been working his whole life to like be to get that to get that gig with the big jazz artists and to like be on the stage with them. Um, and he's like thinking, and there's like a series of events, and just the line from the movie is. I'm 37 years old, and if I died tomorrow, I will feel like I've accomplished nothing. And I think that's like a very, um, that's a very kind of like a real thought that that goes out there. And it's like because of this, in a way, I don't, I don't want to talk about the movie so much, but it turns out this way is like that. That what I was speaking about before that like uh, that tu- it, it can become that your value system becomes your tunnel vision. Right. And because you're trying to build such a powerful and strong value system because of how powerful this denial of death or existential awareness the humans have is out there is that we end up putting blinders up to a lot of the moment by moment experiences with other people and like nature and things that are just like not as inherently tied toward the value structure of like who David Rosen is and my ego out in the world, but more about how, who Garov is or who Trey is or who my wife is or who my neighbor across the street is. Um, and that's like at the, that was at the core. That's why I think so. It was like, it's the core of um, just like a, a just tweaking perce- It's like a, a, it's like a perception hack in a yeah. way. You know? It's like, it's like I know we talk about Maslow. Trey and I, he showed me some work. I hadn't been familiar with Maslow's late work um, about transcendence, um, being at the the peak of his of his hierarchy of uh, hierarchy of needs beyond self actualization, and it doesn't get the it doesn't get the same. You know, when you look at if you if you go Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you probably won't find um, transcendence at the at the peak there um a lot of it was maybe there was one paper by him and there were a number of speeches that were recorded which trey showed me in our independent study it was it was conveniently left out of many uh psychology textbooks convenient conveniently left out um and and uh you know you can find a lot of um self-actualization is great to really know to really know yourself um but if you just have billions of selves um running around running around the planet that doesn't make for the best planet to me for the the you know the species right i I like what you said about the blinders too uh just to add like anytime you're creating kind of a superordinate value structure and you know you're not you're not necessarily consciously creating it all the influences the social influences the societal influence those are all playing into to creating that structure but the structure entails certain certain categories and certain barriers between your perception and everything you could possibly perceive right because you have to build that value structure in order to deal with the existential dread that comes with being a human being so so the ability to have like a a hack that that can bypass those deeply formed value structures is just is just absolutely incredible yeah that's that's really fascinating and you're talking about maslow i remember i was doing some uh freelance work for a rehab center out of indiana and i'd written an article about addiction and how you know addiction kind of hijacks maslow's hierarchy of needs you know and so it's interesting to hear us look at that from a different perspective and how psychedelics can kind of open that up and it is interesting that you talk about how transcendence is actually the top because I just recently had an experience with 5-MeO-DMT for the first time. Uh, and I, I wrote a blog about it for on, on the microdose site called When the Drop Joins the Ocean, uh, exploring the 5-MeO-DMT experience. And it's so interesting because, you know, a lot of people kind of discuss that as kind of being one of the most powerful psychedelic 
uh, experiences, you know, and what, something really interesting I heard about psychedelics once is that what they do to the brain is sort of akin to what the phenomenon that took place when Galileo discovered the earth is not at the center of the universe, you know, like kind of how the brain activity is not so focused in the prefrontal cortex with psychedelics, but it opens up activity in these, in the back, in the middle parts of the brain, and it, it you know, crushes our ego, and it shows us that we're more than uh, the these little identities and thought, you know, uh, egotistical selves we thought we were, and how that's sort of a similar phenomenon to when we realize we're not the center of the universe, you know. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting analogy. I don't know if you want to comment on that. I thought it was cool. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll comment on that. Um, we, I mean, we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll comment on every, every everything you're like ever. Um, yeah, like I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be to the point here. I'll be brief. Um, the prefrontal cortex, right, um, is the most recently evolved um, part of the brain, and it's what gives us, as humans, it gives us an advantage, right, over other species. It gives us the advantage to think into the future, to plan ahead of time, to think about things abstractly, to evaluate um, based on what we've learned before, right? You know, we talk like Carl Friston and talking about like predictive coding and things like that, which is you know kind of at the forefront of of like cognitive neuroscience is like, you know, we are adaptable because you drop us in a place, we'll learn the new system around us, we'll make some errors. Every time we make an error, we update what we know about this, what we know about the world and ourselves before, and we'll move through this world as long as our brains are functioning, functioning properly, and we'll keep updating our beliefs um, until we have a pretty good sense of our environments and we feel like we can, you know, we work pretty well in them and hopefully you're life, life learners, but that's not always the case. In a lot of realms, we kind of, those things become set, right? And we kind of, we, we like, we're, we're this thing on this political, on this political belief, on this religion. Um, I, I like this sports team. This is the band I like the most. Um, this is my favorite director. You know, go down the list. And, and those those pieces that are kind of set um we use as like like as you're saying like as like a filter um and that's the way that we you know we don't all the say perception is different for everyone not because the sound waves out of my speaker are physically different than if anyone else were to sit in my chair but it's because what the brain has heard and the experiences that they have had of the person sitting in the chair hearing those sound waves are completely different i can hear a fish jam from 1997 and i can tell you like maybe even what song it is 20 minutes in and like what show it's from on the tour and i give it to someone else and they're like it's like the most boring weird thing it doesn't even sound like music sound like music <laughs> and that's just like that's that is the filter from which we take in information and we're constantly processing and evaluating it, but based on our likes and needs and all of, and all of those different things. So if you shut down, so that's like your constant evaluation and like filter of information. Um, this really links back to yes. And psychedelics definitely, because you're kind of turned in a way you're like, you're, uh, you're attenuating the filter, if not like almost shutting it off. So instead of perceiving everything through that, like set structure, you're kind of like, opening up the possibilities and that's why we see openness as such a strong um correlate right of, of people who have had psychedelic experiences and that's what we found we have also found that and replicated that effect in other studies is like that personality trait um and being willing because right in these studies people who ha have to be willing in the first place to even be a part of a psychedelic trial or something like that so you're gonna you're gonna naturally recruit that um segment of the population um, that's a kind of, that's also one of the criticisms uh, we were just we were talking about this doing some reviews for our paper you know one of the biggest criticisms from my own advisors to drexel is that you know in these studies they're not like double blind and just like open to the general population because of those you know uh like kind of uh you know limitations in terms of what is you know allowed but that same phenomenon of, as you're saying the sh kind of uh, attenuation of prefrontal and ex we call that ex executive function kind of that evaluation system and filter um, the same thing in creativity and flow states is what we found in my work at Drexel with jazz musicians is that when people are performing at their highest, uh, best level of creativity as judged by kind of like a panel of, you know, listeners who rate these improvisations, um, when you, what you see is the, the expert musicians, they do exactly what you're saying. They shift their brain activity to more, uh, posterior or kind of back areas, um, and you see that deactivation, we call it hypofrontality, the shutting down of, of prefrontal cortices, because rather than, you know, if you can kind of, the idea is if you, um, what's, what's the analogy I make? 
the the brain is like a pool it's like a pool of water and you can think of the water as the amount of cognitive resources that you have at your disposal at even any given point in time and if your resources are being gobbled up by this like rigid kind of structure that you have in place of like analytical thinking well then you're not going to be able to have the same kind of openness and we'll call it playfulness in music in a way but it could be just like you know cognitive playfulness also is like another way to think about openness of like considering all kinds of different possibilities and it's it's that not only is that state do we see that in terms of like our perceptions of our perceptions of the world and do we see it in like artistic performance increasing performance but we also see it in terms of uh like the flow state itself so the subjective evaluation of saying i am experiencing right now in this moment or like usually it's after the fact so you know there's some experimental uh uh, limitations there but like after the fact when you look at flow ratings compared to brain activity you see the same thing again it's like i was feeling as though i was you know uh you know time time was distorted temporal my my temporal perception of the experience is like wow five minutes just went away and there's all these different kind of uh, characteristics of achieving that flow so everything seemed to work one thing after the other i wasn't like controlling my behavior necessarily in the same way i would normally um and so you see it kind of on all fronts where it's counterintuitive. It's like the most, what we consider the most adaptive part of humanity, the prefrontal cortex and that ability to make decisions and analyze and like really get our thoughts and plan and organize. Um, it lets us be who we are and has let us um, evolve to be the humans of the world. We're the most powerful and greatest species ever, depending on who you ask. Um, but the reason, we, the reason we say that is because of our prefrontal cortex. And that's actually maybe not the best way yeah. to think about the way that humans should function on a world with millions of other species. Man, you know, that's so interesting because it's the same. It kind of reminds me of that book Sapien, you know, uh, and it talks about kind of like the same mechanisms that helped us advance where we are so quickly are to our detriment now as well you know and uh as much as we need our prefrontal cortex to plan and to be able to survive in this physical world you know the more we kind of lean into things like meditation and the psychedelic experience we see that we also need to be able to deconstruct and disintegrate that you know uh and our strong attachment to the ego and the kind of labels and filters like you talk about that we kind of ha have through our, our prefrontal cortex. So it's kind of that duality, you know, that we live in, like we need it, but we also need to get rid of it at times, you know, and to really strike that balance as I guess, maybe the middle path or something like the Buddha was talking about, you know, but that's kind of on a neuroscience level. It's an interesting way to kind of look at, you know, Eastern philosophy and how, you know, the brain sort of fits into our experience and how its mechanisms can help us move forward but then we also have to kind of become you know self-aware like you're talking about uh to be able to to really find more satisfaction and happiness in life so that that's all really cool one of the things i wanted to ask you guys about of course is what you're both interested uh, and excited about in this space moving forward you know um what are some of the things that you're really looking forward to uh you know in in this industry as far as pharmacology new therapeutics and just psychedelic medicine in general uh, i'd love to hear from both of you about that shall i you can go first trey okay. yeah <laughs> okay so there's there's been an emerging class of compounds that people are calling psychoplastogens that are essentially psychedelics that don't have psychedelic activity. So they, they cause the release of a uh, brain derived nootropic factor and things like that, 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 uh, you know, can rewire the brain in certain ways, but they, and they bind to the 5-HT2A receptor, which is really strange because generally anything that binds to that receptor has psychedelic effects. But now we've got these compounds like, uh, 5-MeO ISO DMT and Tabernanthalog, which is probably the worst name for a compound that anyone has ever thought of. But anyways, these these compounds are, are absolutely fascinating. And I think that's going to be a huge part of the next five to 10 years of, of psychedelic research. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily believe that stripping a compound of psychedelic activity is gonna is gonna give you the same efficacy as a full 
potency 5-HT 2A agonist. But, I mean, hell, let's try it. Let's try everything. Make every compound. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I want to comment on that real quick, yeah. Ben, before you, you jump in, David, because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about is, uh, you know, there, there is a push, a concerted effort to uh, remove the mystical or psychedelic or hallucinatory experience from psychedelics. Uh, I think the idea is there... Uh, well, some people look at those as a side effect and, you know, it might be a more palatable medication if it didn't have them. Of course, there's another school of thinking that that says that you need the, the psychedelic experience and the visual and just uh, hallucinations to really uh, solidify its therapeutic potential. And people are kind of on both sides of that. So um, where do you guys both fall on that? And then I still want to go back to David to answer the previous question. I just don't think it's a binary. I think we should we should mm -hmm. do both. Okay, interesting. What do you think, David? Um, I I fall into the camp with Trey. I think uh, we should be trying. We should try everything. Um, not uh, you know, there's again, we were just talking. We were going over this paper, the review, doing some reviews. Um, you know, you get your skeptics out there still. You know, it's very recent that you know. We're having you know, states pass laws that are allowing um, this kind of clinical research to happen, and you know, not every the, the psychedelic experience, you know, for people out there, you know, who've who've had that experience and and it's been life changing and there's long term effects and all you know all the various both clinical anecdotes and personal anecdotes that you know of the power. Um, yes, that's that's there and those those have happened, but it's not it's not right. It's not right for everyone right every experience isn't right for everyone and so if you could get to similar you know almost as good clinical effects without freaking out 30 percent of the people <laughs> like or, or not maybe responding well <laughs> um, i pulled that number kind of out of my ass i'm not sure if it's about 30 percent but it's probably a little less than that um but, you know <laughs> try quite a bit less quite a bit quite a bit less let's <laughs> like 10 percent. let's let's try it for sure um right. yeah but in terms of excitement uh mm -hmm. So I'll go. I don't. I can't uh, speak as eloquently about the pharmacology of of the compounds, but um, I'm really interested just to see, um, you know, the the continued um, acceptance and use um, at stages in life where people struggle the most and find the most difficulty, just like being, um, and having that be a way to make life a better experience. And to maybe change the perspective of 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 what death is. I mean, I I know I'm sure a lot of us here and listening and like you know giving that a lot of thought. That is a very overwhelming and like can be bleak and can be you know depending on the way that you view it. But like I think you know our culture puts a lot of especially you know in the United States, um, like the way that we treat people who are elderly is disgusting. Um, my opinion like it's like you're 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 there for a minute you're in the limelight you know you reach a certain point no one's listening to you, you're cast off a side it's like you know pretty much useless and like that's seems it's very opposite for some like eastern cultures in terms of the way that um that's thought of and so you know it's it's you get a lot of signals from the world that like kind of your life is over and you're not as useful anymore and then you know that's like that's that's a really seems like a dark kind of way to you know first the society to like think about you and then like you know for a lot and most people why would that affects us you know and so this is a way to like you know hopefully a, a change that perception societally but also at the individual level that's awesome and i mean as as a as a personal just like interest i like know that some of my favorite musicians and like musical and music and art experiences um the confluence of art and music and psychedelic experiences there is like there's a reason why those things are paired um and diving into what are like the what are the syner synergistic effects when you bring together you know great artistic and musical minds and and then allow that to open and i think we see that like in pop culture through stories and things and you know popular musicians and comedy musicians but to understand really um, why that is on a, a neurobiological, neurophysiological level would be just like my favorite thing that I could ever like research, I think. Oh, that, that's really fascinating. One of the things I wanted to mention about that is 
you know, talking about the way we treat our elders uh, and how it's different in, you know, uh, some Eastern countries. And I think we'll, we have so much to learn from the psychedelic experience and the cultures from which they come from, you know. Uh, being in Mexico right now, it's really interesting. You know, we, I was here in September working on a documentary with Microdose and uh, the documentary kind of started talking about the indigenous roots of a lot of these medicines, you know. And when we're trying to figure out ways to... Uh, construct the psychedelic assisted therapy model, you know, and what that really looks like and, you know, understanding things like nutrition and meditation and music and art, they all go hand in hand with the psychedelic experience. And part of that is like, you know, psychedelic medicine and, and, and these medicines were carried down through the elders of these tribes, you know, and uh, a lot of times with something like ayahuasca, for instance, uh, the person receiving the healing wasn't even taking the medicine you know they were going to meet with the shaman and the shaman would take the medicine and just channel that uh, energy or that healing and then pass that on to the, the person it wasn't until westerners came in they're like well that doesn't make sense like i should be taking the medicine too you know <laughs> um but it's just it's it's interesting like with uh, the the psychedelic experience and and um this whole renaissance is that it does give us an opportunity to reconstruct and revamp the way we approach so much of life you know and i think this is a big part of it and the way we treat each other and the way we treat our elders you know and uh, a lot of the cultures and tribes that these medicines like peyote and ayahuasca that they come from you know it's you're right so it's totally the opposite you know the the medicine men and the elders of that tribe are looked at with the utmost reverence and respect uh and so i think it's showing us in this renaissance uh, a lot of the ways that we uh treat each other can you know really needs to be looked at again and then we need to dive deeper into the way into the fact that we are all connected to each other you know and that we all can um benefit whether we take psychedelics or not from being kinder to one another you know and uh and being and being nicer to everybody what, what do you guys think <laughs> well I think uh, paying attention to the indigenous uses kind of allows us to rectify and actually just recognize the fact that there's parts of Western uh, medicine that just aren't necessary. Like this, the synergistic effects of natural uh, drugs derived from natural products. Why does it make sense to isolate those and say, oh, this is the active component? Well, what if it's not? What if all the beta carbolines in band stereopsis are synergistic with each other. Why would you isolate harmine and say, oh, well, we're only gonna use this? Well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you bring that up because that was something we had, I talked about just for a second before David hopped on the entourage effect, you know, and like why I think cannabis might have might have fallen short uh, from a therapeutic standpoint is is you know we didn't have so much success taking just THC or CBD unless it's for Dravet's or Lennox Gusteau, you know, uh, so much efficacy taking them out of context, and it seems that a lot of psychedelic drugs do are able to reproduce enough efficacy on a single molecule uh, paradigm or construct than something like cannabis can. But you're right, you know, there's a lot of opportunity if we can just let go of some of the limiting filters that we use to study drugs, you know, and study medicine, because uh, there could be so much more there, especially with the plant medicines, you know? Well, of course. I mean, it, part of the reason is just the, the the legal framework is imagine putting all those phytocannabinoids and terpenes through the FDA approval process. It's going to take 200 years. It's just not possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, so so I, I, I think we need to we need to take a leaf out of the indigenous guidebook and and reassess the relationship we have to lead compounds in general and just say you know a lead compound could be a class of compound where we say you know take all the beta carbolines and you know approve them as a mixture it has to be that way there's no way we can get we can continue to move forward with just isolating and then you know fluorinating the natural product and then saying oh i'll patent this it's not gonna. It's not gonna hold water. 
That's interesting. There's a, obviously a big push now, too, for the derivatization of different psychedelic molecules. And, you know, I, again, there's people on both sides. There's the chemists that are obviously like, you know, nature is a starting point and it can be improved. <laughs> and then, you know, there's the other side that's like you're just trying to you're just being patent trolls. You know, you're just trying to do what you can to, to make a patent out of, you know, since we can't patent the classic psychedelic drugs. So I'm curious what you guys, uh, you know, as we're getting towards the end here, it'd be interesting to get both of your inputs uh, on that point. Well, make no mistake, I'm very pro synthesis. <laughs> but, <laughs> Dave? Um, yeah, like the whole process of, I mean, you know, getting, um, you know, new naturalistic ways of treating a variety of. Of, of ailments there's just a lot of there's just gonna be a lot of pushback generally just because of the way like we're set up like the whole medical system and like you know there's a lot of great things there's a lot of great things about capitalism so you know that's like you know in a way it's a driving force towards a lot of a lot of innovation and growth and there's you know but at the same time you know you have very powerful industries who are going to be resilient and and they're going to be they try, try to be resilient in the way that things are to keep things the way they are and to and to you know as new possibilities come along that would disrupt the structure that's like that's the age old like you know once you have power you'll do whatever it is to, it is to keep the status quo because in the current state like you have the power and so it's met with as many you can have you know you know we know that there's thousands and thousands of people out there that understand the power that this way is better or that way that way is not but like when the you know it's the same thing with technology like we're seeing it you know like our technology was our technologies aren't created for how they can best suit uh human beings and and best help us you know advance our minds and our experiences um they're they're used to capture all of our data to sell the data and then to try to help try to make us make us think a certain way and in that way can be it's so extreme as to to turn the people into two different ideologies and have one storm the capital um <laughs> literally and like so it's yeah. an uphill it's like an up it, you know it's like a, it's an up not only is it an uphill battle to to you know have whether whether it's whether it was further research into THC and CBD and or different psychedelic compounds, but uh, like one of those first steps, I think, is the not is it goes back to just like two groups, East and West. Like it's like you can look at look at two. It's us and them. It's like just the idea. Another's another good experiment. How many Americans would be willing to consider that there's parts of like Eastern Eastern thought that are just as correct as Western thought? like worded in that like worded in that kind of way and i bet right. you'd, you'd be like astounded you know and this, that's just like the difference that there's a key difference in there if you go to any psychology class um anywhere in the world <laughs> i went to every university and uh, the what i learned pretty good school pretty good school like i got to go i got to learn about different religions I, I learned about like hinduism through religion not through like psychology and such but like in these like basic classes of like the mind and like societies and cultures that you learn about it's anthropology too literally like you walk out of a program get a good institution what you know about eastern philosophy eastern culture and and western culture western culture is individualistic and eastern culture is more collect more collective that's like the one fact i think that like you should, everyone walks every, but no one understand what no one understands what that actually <laughs> means and how it affects society on like a much a society and the individual about how you think about the world on a much grander scale that fact it literally is like has a massive massive impact on the way that structures across industries and across domains from economics to from economics to religion and politics unfold um, and this isn't really answering your question because I kind of when I can't really answer a question directly, I just like end up talking about some other things you might find interesting. <laughs> I, I also I also do that, but no, that was a really interesting point. And what uh, I thought of was I think one thing would be so it would be so valuable if this if the psychedelic Renaissance helped more of us to do in the West is just be comfortable with being wrong. You know, like if people were just okay with if if just 
what being wrong is an opportunity to learn more and expand their knowledge base and then be able to have a, a, a more you know versatile and a, I guess accurate representation of the world that would be very valuable than people being so attached you know and I guess it comes down to like detachment you know which is a, another pillar of the Eastern philosophical paradigm is detachment you know and so these are all such important things that uh, you know what one hopes the psychedelic experience can bring to more people because we need it more than ever today, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's like, that's you know, the same thing. I see so many parallels between creativity and flow and, and the psychedelic experience is the same. The same mentality applies there. It's like when you make, you know, an excellent jazz musician or improviser or, you know, pick your domain when you're improvising, when you make a mistake, you own that mistake and you do the mistake again. That's like a very common teaching. So you make a mistake, you do it again, you do it a third time, you do it a fourth time. Guess what? It's not a mistake anymore, right? Now <laughs> you're, you're owning it. You're owning it. And now in 30 seconds, now you're in a place you would have never been able to be because rather than like being hard on yourself and wanting to be like cover it up and like break and then like physiologically you respond and you tense up. But instead, the mentality of like, I'm wrong. This is like something that didn't happen. What, what could happen next? What's the next thing I could do? Right. To make this not like wrong, but to like make this this is what's happening. Right. And that's the same yeah. that's the same process. It's that top down filter. It's the the frontal control saying like beep, 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 error, 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 must fix the error. Right. Because we're program <laughs> Trey's like laughing. We're pro we're to, to he, uh, another guy we'd like to listen to, David Bohm. Um, Trey mm -hmm. turned me on to you know, and talking about programs that run. And that's like the that's the underlying program of our culture. It's like when you're wrong, you tense up. Um, Jerry Seinfeld used to have um, used to have a pretty good line in his stand-up that I, that I liked. Uh, my dad's a big Seinfeld fan, so like, we always get down and <laughs> watch Seinfeld and all his stand-up and like his books and stuff. And uh, he had this line that in his stand-up routine. It was like, the number one fear of people, you ask them, is public speaking. Um, and it's because it's the same thing. It's like you're worried about being judged. You're worried about slipping up. You're worried about misreading something because you know that if that moment happens, potentially you could like break down. And so that means that if number one, the number two fear of humans is death. Is, is death. You've heard this. All right. So the person yeah. giving the person who's giving the eulogy, you're more scared of the being the one giving the eulogy at the at the funeral than the one being in the casket. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I, love, I really, really love that. Well, it's like, it's like, dude, oh my God. Like, that's a very representative of like, you yeah. know, that kind of like, just like system and how, 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 uh, universal that it, that feeling is within our culture. And like, um, I think it's just like an interesting example of that. I love that bit. I'm a big Seinfeld you, fan. I feel as well, too. you know. Trey, you're too young. Trey's too young <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't see Seinfeld. It's it's really fun. I was just talking to my friend yesterday about that. You were at a bar, and said it's funny they took so many everyday life situations, but it's so applicable. You know, it's so applicable now, and it's so amazing how Larry David David just approached creating that show. It's mm -hmm. pretty fantastic. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I think we're at a great place now. Whenever I close one of my shows, uh, I I love to give. The guest the microphone you know and let you guys have the last word uh whether there's a message you want to share with our audience a closing thought uh trey and david the mic's all yours sure i'll Why don't you I'll, go first trey trey david, david. that doesn't matter yeah okay uh, uh, um my closing thoughts um i'll give a little plug if that's cool um yeah I've, please uh, so basically I've been pursuing all different research. I'm an active researcher, and uh, my I'm now at a startup company. That I started about um, in a in April. I've been working. I've been working there in 2019, about almost two years now. And it's actually taken this neuroscience research on popular music, um, and we have been um, analyzing music from 1958 through the present, hundreds of thousands of songs. Um, and basically, what we have found is that um, there are certain patterns of surprise that lead to preference in the brain that trigger dopamine systems. And so what we've been doing is I find this really interesting is like to be able to take to be able to take the neuroscience research. And um, my co-founder, Scott Miles, uh, he came up to me in grad school, came to our lab, found me and no one in academia, almost no one is studying the neuroscience of popular music enjoyment. You know, there's lots of studies going on about, you know, classical music, Bach, um, you know, there's there's some more work on, on jazz like I've done on the on the production side. But in terms of like what 
you know, why do certain people like certain kinds of music? Um, what is it? What cultural trends are there? What generational? What are, what things are passed on? Why do certain sounds make a revival? There's all these um, there's all these like explicit conscious factors like how what is the what does the star look like or like where are they from or like what is their what video are they, do they have at this point? But there's also that's like kind of the conscious piece. There's also kind of the, this implicit unconscious piece, which is uh, we measure as surprise or entropy in music. And we can start, to, I mean, I'm not going to get into it now, but this this idea of entropy um, is really kind of goes along with that process that we're talking about, Carl Friston earlier, of like predictive coding and learning. And so what's cool about music and other forms of artwork is that um, it's like language too. It's like once you set, um, once you're young and you start to learn what patterns go together, what statistical regularities are in your environment, then from that kind of point, you like, you are kind of set and then you go off and you learn about kind of new pieces in the world and you update your sense of kind of what you know and what you identify with and so if you ask this is what scott loves to do if you ask any person what was what is your favorite music um what's your favorite band um if you answer that question almost every single person will tell you about a musical act that they listen to between the ages of 14 and 20. um and there's a ton of reasons for that it's like because that's when you're starting to move beyond. You're starting to critically think as a 14 and 20 year old. You're forming what you think is your own sense of, of an identity. You're forming social bonds that are your choice. It's not just like I'm in a school. I do this activity. My parents sent me to this place. And so these are the people around me. But you start to make those decisions. And music, which is just one form of culture, um, is what bonds us and bonds us as a culture. And I think whether it's psychedelics or whether it's appreciation of music or it's just the bonds that we create with people, that's the things that we need to be more focused on in our world um, instead of potentially going out there and trying to you know, scream at every person who might have a slightly different um, opinion than us because there's a much better way that we can experience the world. And so that's what kind of we're trying to do and why um, I'm trying to deliver you know, better music and get the best music out there to people because I think that's just one way that secret chord laboratories can help improve the the human experience. Wow, that Hell was yeah. amazing! Thanks, David. No problem. I'm good at plugging. Right. My, I'm good at plugging myself. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. Appreciate. It. Thanks for uh, oh, you know, having, oh, having oh, me. Yours, Trey. Oh, absolutely. All right, I got I got a plug and then I got a call for unity. But uh, yeah, so un unlimited science is what one of the things we're doing right now, which has gotten quite a bit of press, is the uh, the real world psilocybin study with Johns Hopkins, and that's basically just creating a registry of people who intend to use psilocybin and uh, and and tracking their progress over time as they fill out these surveys after you know, before and then after their, their psilocybin experience. So anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're planning to, to have a psilocybin experience in the next year, you can sign up for, for this, uh, study. And it's so far where we have over 3000 participants and, uh, we have no plans to slow down recruitment. So we'll let, <laughs> thankfully we have people at Johns Hopkins who are, handling that data because a 3000 person data set with you know six surveys is not the most easy set to sort through but then i also i also want to want to talk about uh i i just feel like there's kind of a perception in the psychedelic community that there's this inexorable unstoppable march toward psychedelic legalization which is just absolutely not true and the idea that we can do it, it's not. The idea that we can somehow do it without getting the other side on board is just not, it's not realistic. I don't like hearing the divisive talk. I don't like hearing other political bents being brought in. If you want to see psychedelics decriminalized or legalized, it's time to collaborate. It's time to work together. It's time to put your political other political differences aside and for the good of humanity say, all right, we can agree that people deserve to have sovereignty over their own consciousness and that we have the, we have the responsibility to cultivate that consciousness and to be s stewards of our own selves and our planet. And, you know, 
it's 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 not a final it's not a finalized deal yeah wow that was amazing trey and david both of you guys shared incredible insight and a really powerful message and some really funny and uh, interesting stuff. I look forward to going back and listening to, to, to this again and to our listeners. Uh, this will be on YouTube and Spotify and iTunes as well. Uh, briefly, David and Trey, if you guys could both share how people can reach you guys uh, on Limited Sciences or Secret Court or you know how people wanted to contact you with questions, how can they best do that? Dave? Sure. So I'm Dave at secretcordlaboratories.com. I know it's a mouthful. Um, doper.com also works. That's the name of our uh, predictive music analytics software. So doper, D-O-P-R, like the molecule, dopamine. Um, that's, the yeah. name of, that's the name of the software. Um, so yeah, David secretcordlaboratories.com or doper.com. You can find out all about us. Um, for those of you who are interested in investing in Secret Cord Laboratories, we also are in the middle of a fundraising round. Amazing. Yeah, and um, you can reach me at Trey at unlimitedsciences.org. All right, beautiful. And you guys can find these episodes, uh, like I said, in iTunes and Spotify. Uh, this is a sci-fi podcast where we interview and speak with leading industry experts, clinicians, and researchers to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. I was joined today by Trey Basher and David Rosen. Thank you both so much. Uh, I had a great time in today's episode, and I look forward to you know when we can connect again. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks for having Scarf. me. Yeah, really appreciate yeah, take, it. Great to meet you. Take Take care, guys. You too. See ya. See ya. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.